welcome back to Crimes from the East. I'm your host Pia and with me is cousin Alex. Hi Alex. Hey Pia. How's How are going? you doing? <laughs> Jinx. Jinx. <laughs> um, it's going good. I'm a little tired but I feel accomplished. I did a lot of house cleaning. I settled 5,000 toys that my toddler loves to spread around the house. How are you doing Alex? Man, it's January. It's dark just so much. I hate this time of year, to be honest. I know that January is supposed to be sort of like the beginning of the new year and getting in whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I'm just like, can can we get to springtime already? <laughs> it's a bad start. It's a bad start to the year, right? Like January. <laughs> it's rough on the nor- yeah. northern hemisphere wise anyways. We need to get to India, mm-hmm. get some sun, vitamin D. I wish the first month was like June. Yeah, that'd be right? good. Just start the year with June. We need to change the calendar. Right. Move things around. Let New Year be like May. May 31st is New Year's. And then June. Whoa, Happy New Year. You know, it'll change things mentally, psychologically. And then you like sort of end the year on a high note because it's springtime. And then, yeah, I'm I'm for that. And then summer's coming. Oh, my God. Exactly. We're solving like big, big problems. Big in the problems. World. <laughs> I don't know if you knew this. I talked to your mom, who was with my mom. Oh yeah, they're traipsing all around Kerala. I'm so jealous. Looks so nice. But um, I informed Mashi, your mom, of my like most recent hobby that I've started, and she, oh, in return, informed me that I am officially a hooker. What? <laughs> I've joined the hooker club because my nice new self. hobby so proud of you. is crochet, which involves a hook. So that was a really fun conversation that we had. Hi, Mashi. Your newest and bluest hooker is here. For a second, I got a little excited. I'm like, what, Alex? <laughs> I know. That's a high paying job. Congrats. <laughs> Can be, can't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. So I'll introduce you like that in the next episode. (laughs) Our family's latest hooker. (laughs) We have a bunch. They love to crochet. It's in our blood. You know, by the way, Alex, today we're going to do something very different for our case. Speaking of a gorilla strategy, this has nothing to do with gorillas, I'm guessing, but... No, no gorillas here. switching it up. We need a name for these kinds of episodes. I'm going to call these Pravasi episodes. And let me explain what I mean by that. So the case doesn't take place in South Asia, but the people involved, they are of some Indian ancestry. Okay. Their ancestors were Indian and lived in India at one point. Interesting. I mean, I can only think of one well-known place. It's either like the UK... Or, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of Indian communities in the U.S., but I feel like you're talking about something else. The case actually takes place in Loxahatchee, Florida, but the victims involved are of Indian ancestry. Zambia. No, they're Indo-Guyanese. What? (gasps) South America. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. 
Now, I've been drawn to this case for more than a decade. I don't know why, but it stuck out to me ever since I saw it on Unsolved Mysteries. And I think it's because the people involved are, you know, kind of somewhat Indian, right? Like when you see people who look like you, you don't always want representation in true crime. Like I don't want right. <laughs> South Asians to be victims <laughs> in any way. But but that's what made me remember the case. Yeah. It's kind of like when Indian people see me, they're like, is, is she? <laughs> Are you? <laughs> you know, Alex, the best part is you look so ethnically ambiguous. You could literally pass for like at least 30 countries. <laughs> it's beautiful. You're like the perfect actress for like Netflix and Prime movies where they want to make wish. sure they represent everything. <laughs> Until I open my mouth and then they're like, boom, American. No question. Gringa, as my Brazilian friends call me, which I <laughs> am always sort of startled by. <laughs> Okay, so anyways, today we will talk about the unsolved disappearance of Moses Lal and Leelawati Buratan or Buiratan, Ratan, Buiratan. Buiratan. That sounds more like Indonesian almost or Southeast Asian to me. I looked up this last name, a very unique name, and I couldn't find anyone with this last name except for this victim. And I looked up that term. It actually is a kind of rattan weaving work that was done in Indonesia and other places to make furniture, like rattan furniture. Yeah. So bui rattan is a type of rattan. Oh, okay. Weaving artisanal skills. So it's possible that, you know, her ancestors did that kind of work and the name stuck. Mm. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. So these two, Moses Lal and Lilawati, they were related. They were relatives. She was his mashi, his auntie. Okay. His mom's sister, but very close in age. They were like barely five or six years apart. That happens in Indian families a lot, by the way. Like back in the day, your uncle's like younger than you. I think my mom even has like an uncle that is a teenager. Yeah, yeah, me too. I have a cousin uncle who's like younger than me. It's wild. These two, the victims, were originally from Guyana in South America, but they disappeared under mysterious circumstances while living in Florida 28 years ago. So it's an old case from like 1994. Good times. The sources for today's episode are the Sun Sentinel, NamUs, Web Sleuths, Unsolved Mysteries Wiki, and of course... Season 8, Episode 2 of Unsolved Mysteries and Season 5, Episode 15 of Disappeared. So this case has been featured in quite a few true crime shows. I'm curious to hear why because I have i haven't heard about the story before. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the country that Moses and Lilawati came from, Guyana. There are two Guyanas or is French Guyana the same as Guyana? French Guyana. Is there like a country called French Guyana? I think there's French Guyana, and it was a French colony in regular Guyana, which was maybe British colonized or something. Oh, okay. It's a different country, like physically mm -hmm. a okay. different country. Cool. I wasn't sure because I had heard, I've heard of both. <laughs> so it seems like, yes, there is like some French territory in South America called French Guyana. 
And it is different from Guyana. And isn't Guyana where Jonestown was? Yes. Sure is. So is this like a cursed place? No, it's not. It's actually a beautiful place. It's not <laughs> I'm <cursed>. just kidding. <laughs> now, Guyana is such a beautiful place with rich biodiversity and a relatively small human population in an area about the size of Idaho in the U.S. and Gujarat in India. So it's not like too big, but it's big enough. Mm-hmm. Now, Guyana is in South America. It's nestled between Venezuela... Brazil, and Suriname. So it's got a nice coastline, beaches, and like tropical Amazonian forest jungles in the back. That's where we should be right now. <laughs> mm-hmm, that's where we need to be. Frigid northern hemisphere. Now, 80% of the country is covered in dense tropical rainforests, some of which are practically inaccessible to humans, like most of the Amazon mm-hmm. jungle is, because it is part of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Now, there are magnificent waterfalls and a ton of biodiversity that is unique on the planet. Guyana is home to more than 900 species of birds, 225 species of mammals, 880 species of reptiles. Uh Uh-oh. And more than 6,500 different species of plants. So, I like all of that except for the reptiles part. I feel like there are not many reptiles that I'm loving. You really got to be some kind of snake person to like uh, reptiles. Yeah, I don't like reptiles either. Um, But I respect them. There are creatures on this earth. They need, you know, they have their place. Just not in my home. (laughs) Just not in my home. My respect takes the form of fear in this particular situation. (laughs) Now, among these wildlife categories, the most famous are the Arapaima which is the world's largest scaled freshwater fish. Ooh. And if anyone's played Animal Crossing, they would know this fish because you have to collect it for your aquarium. Really? What? <laughs> Arapaima, yeah. They also have the giant anteater, which is so cool. cute. Cool. Yeah, I love anteaters. And there's a bird called the cock of the rock. Oh, no. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I had to look this up. It's a goofy looking bird. Cock of the rock. Definitely an English person named this bird. It's a goofy looking bird. I think it's like an orange bird with a little floof on his he- head. Oh, it is really cute. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of personality. It's just a bird, bird, bird. Cool, cool biodiversity. And that is so rare on this planet that I'm glad Guyana is part of that. You know, Guyana is helping preserve that we need less people more jungles please okay everyone stay away from guyana leave it alone please leave it alone i know i just said that that's where we need to be but actually (laughs) 86 that statement leave it alone just visit and leave don't even visit just forget about it existing go to florida go to florida it's already ruined just go there (laughs) sorry florida listeners The land was originally occupied by several indigenous tribes of people like the Lokono, Kalina, and Waiwai. Now, these indigenous tribes were sadly colonized by the Dutch West Indian Company in the 1500s. Dang, colonial white devils at it again. One thing we've noticed is wherever the Dutch West Indian Company went, you know who followed after? The colonial white devils from Britain. Came right over in 1814. Oh, yeah. 
and they found the place was perfect to cultivate sugar. <gasps> and mm. they did so by forming large plantations, especially in the region called Demerara. So you may have heard of Demerara yeah, sugar. Yeah, yummy. That's in Guyana. Okay, good to know. Now they formed massive plantations and utilized slavery to produce and sell sugar all over the world. Not cool, not uh-uh. cool, damn devils. Mm-hmm. People from Africa were captured and brought over to work here for nearly 150 years before they were officially emancipated in 1838. And most of them abandoned the plantations at once because I'm sure they wanted nothing to do yeah. with these cursed places. Now, the Brits were in a jam and they needed workers to exploit. So what do they do? They've got some uh, colonies out in the east. Hmm. So they lied and trapped thousands of Indians and Sri Lankans and shipped them over here as indentured laborers. They were made to sign five-year contracts at a very, very, very low daily wage, after which they were promised a little promotion and another promise (laughs) that after five years... A further servitude, they could either go back to India, they would get tickets, or they'd get a little land to build their own home and start their own business. The strategy sounds kind of familiar. A little World Cup action. Nearly 240,000 Indians were brought over a span of 80 years to Guyana until the indentured labor system was canceled by Indian nationals in 1917. A lot of Indo-Guyanese people today still retain parts of their Indian heritage, like their religions, there's Hindus, there's Muslims, there's Christians, um, their customs and traditions, their music, their festivals, and even their cuisine, although some of it is delightfully mixed in and mingled with the Afro-Guyanese culture as well. I mean, it sounds like a delicious and nutritious blend of, like, cultures. It's so amazing. Have you had food from either TNT, Trinidad, or Guyana. Yeah, there's a Guyanese um, food stall in Oregon that I got. I don't even remember what I got, but I do remember Did you get it was doubles? delicious. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yes. So the Indo-Guyanese and Afro-Guyanese mixed, and so their music's mixed. And there's this genre of music called soca chutney music what? which is so amazing like have you heard soca music no you know what i mean oh like yes 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 i know exactly what you're talking about and so they mix in like indian words old indian tunes with the dholak and all that and mm-hmm. they make this genre of music which is so freaking amazing you can't sit still oh my god if you hear this music nice okay love that i think maybe we'll do a little thing at the end um of the episode, we listen to some of this music. Super down. So I'm just so excited about Guyana. I was like asking my husband, maybe we should go on vacation here. Let's Thank you go. for this overview. Like, you know, as I said, I'd heard of it. I had an idea, but I didn't know all of these fun, interesting details. Yeah. It's a very um, modest, humble country. Like, you mm. don't hear too much about Guyana. Like, uh, other countries are like, come to Jamaica, come to blah, blah, blah. Guyana's like, eh, we're fine. We know we're cool. We don't need to have you come see all this. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so now that I've like gone on and on and on about Guyana, let's uh, actually start with the case today. The victims involved, one of them being 
Moses, Bhagwaniala, Lal. Mm-hmm. These are all old-timey names which they've preserved because that's what happens when a culture moves from one country to the other. They preserve the state of their culture and traditions as it was back in the day. When they left, yeah. Bhagwaniala Lal, also known as Moses Lal, was a 31-year-old Indo-Guyanese man who hailed from a prominent family that specialized in exotic birds and animals for export since the 1970s. Now, as we just talked about, the jungles and the animals and the reptiles in Guyana, they have a rich resource to draw from. Hmm. The Lal family, who lived in the Guyanese capital of Georgetown, bought animals from local trappers who scoured the jungles for various types of parrots and tropical birds and sold them through their family business. I think they exported them as well. So they were doing well. Poor birds. Bird goes from being in the jungle to being in a cage. It's an undesirable. Yeah. Now, he was one of seven siblings and had an enterprising personality. He was ambitious and hardworking. He had moved to Toronto. Or is it Toronto? Toronto. It's Toronto, Toronto, I think. Toronto. 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 In his 20s, with his aunt, Leelawati, and elder brother Prem, to study in college, and also try to make it as a model. But things didn't quite work out. I guess he didn't find enough work. His look was kind of unique, and I don't know how many Indian ethnicity models existed in Northern America at that point. Right, yeah. Now maybe he'd get, like, work. He'd be, like, a... Star. A hit. Yeah. Moses moved to the U.S. His mother, Mahadi Lal, set up a warehouse in Queens, New York, called Malabar Aviary Incorporated, where his family would export birds from Guyana to. And after the quarantine period, Moses would then sell these birds off to pet stores in the U.S. Expensive exotic birds, not like little parakeets mm-hmm. and stuff. So like macaws, African greys, and all kinds of other exotic birds. Maybe the cock on the rock. <laughs> made it here too (laughs) one cock on the rock please it sounds like a dirty like cocktail Ooh! oh my god i'm like totally into cocktails these days by the way so maybe i'll like oh really message one of these mixologists on instagram and be like hey can you make a cocktail called cock on the rock (laughs) inspired by this goofy looking bird (gasps) oh yeah that could be cool (sighs) Mm, maybe it's something with like persimmon because that matches Mm -hmm. the color it's the right color Mm, totally uh, we're like derailed very unusual for us isn't it his 35 year old aunt Leela Wati Buiratan came over from Toronto to help with the business and she worked her magic to ensure the birds were well cared for and healthy together they took great care of the birds and business was slowly taking off on some days they would sleep in the warehouse after a long day of caring for the birds so this is their whole life this Mm -hmm. was their whole life They weren't, like, partying or living it up. I mean, they're in New York, you know, the place all immigrants kind of rushed to in the 70s and 80s and 90s. and Different city then, too, yeah. But all these two did was just focus on their business and take care of their birds. Mm -hmm. They started to import more and more birds, more than they could sell, and realized that the harsh winters of New York were not ideal for these tropical birds. So in 1987, they leased some land in Florida and set up a sanctuary of sorts to keep the birds more comfortable in a warmer tropical climate until they were sold. They actually cared about their birds. 
Yeah. Owing to complaints from neighbors in Florida, they had to keep moving. And in 1992, they finally found a five-acre ranch in Loxahatchee, Florida, which they leased. And they could now house and care for almost like five, six hundred birds at a time and even more. I wonder why people were complaining, noise or smell? <laughs> well, noise would be the first because the smell, I mean, you know, you can close your windows, but the noise will still come uh, in. Yeah, but you like go outside and all you smell is just like the the caca of hundreds of birds. <laughs> yeah, it's not my kind of neighbor. In winter where I live, it's like silence, just silence. And the minute, like, spring starts to creep in, the birds come out. Early in the morning, they're like, go, go, beep, beep. And I'm like, shut the hell up. <laughs> I think we might have reached our, like, fundamental philosophical divide here. <laughs> You're on, it? like, anti-sound and I'm on anti-smell. <laughs> <laughs> Together, we would make horrible neighbors for Moses. <laughs> the most annoying neighbor for the, these people yeah we'd be like sending them multiple notes a day <laughs> so moses would often travel to africa to acquire exotic reptiles for his family business he wanted to start selling reptiles in the u.s as well so he made a ton of trips i'm starting to feel like if this guy didn't disappear he would have been the like next tiger king or something yeah oh man like can you imagine a desi looking tiger king that'd be awesome actually shere khan <laughs> not tiger king but shere khan <laughs> now moses handled all the business dealings all the paperwork and his aunt Lilawati handled the birds she had a magic touch you know she had the empathy the sympathy and the right instincts to take care of these creatures Lilawati soon ran a budding bird breeding program at the ranch as well. She would wake up early and feed the little hatchlings, wean them, socialize them appropriately until they were healthy enough to be sold. So, yeah, like we talked earlier, their entire lives revolved around these birds. Perhaps too much because they weren't known to socialize or fraternize with actual local humans. Much. Humans. <sighs> So they're like kind of just weird bird people. But are they weird bird people or are they like people of color in like communities in the 90s that were probably not super welcoming? That's an assumption on my part, but I just feel like that's a very like possible. That was exactly my thought as well. They may have kind of self-isolated, not just because of what they were doing, but also because of what they perceived in yeah. the community. Yeah. We're just, we're just speculating maybe these people were amazing the community was amazing and they didn't care about race or color or whatever and moses and leela with each were just private people right yeah totally weird bird people <laughs> weird bird people and this area was known for other bird breeders so they had like oh. a thriving community here like more than a hundred bird breeders lived in loxahatchee okay bird community in a stroke of bad luck the U.S. passed a Wild Bird Conservation Act in 1993, banning import of exotic birds into the country. So Moses and Leela could no longer rely on their family exports to acquire birds. They now shifted their business and focused on breeding the birds that they already had in the U.S. to sell. I have to say that their bad luck, I 
kind of support the government. Their bad luck, it might be just a, an ecological tiny stroke of good luck. That law was probably a long time coming. It was needed. Like, I'm sure by that time, so many birds and animals were trapped from their free environments and brought over for captivity. Lilawati was industrious and was able to make this a successful endeavor with all her hard work. She was getting really overwhelmed, though, because the volume of birds to care for was now growing exponentially. A victim of her own success. So Moses and Lila decided to employ some workers to take care of the property and the birds. They hired Daljeet Hari Gobin, or Harry, an Indo-Guyanese man who was a distant family acquaintance back in Guyana. They also hired another man called Roland Felix Ayum, who was the brother of an African reptile dealer Moses had met on one of his trips to Africa. So for a year, the ranch continued on despite a few setbacks, which we will talk about later. Okay. Things are going to go a little south now. Well, they're already in the south. They're in Florida. They went south and now things are going south. One fine day on June 4th, 1994, a delivery driver, Daryl, from a company called Birdhaven, brought the birdseed delivery as scheduled to the ranch. And he was surprised to find the gate locked and chained up. This was unusual. The ranch hands knew of the delivery dates and left the gates open for him every week so he could drive up and deliver the sacks right at the doorstep of the home. Daryl left the birdseed at the gate and left although he was curious and returned the next day to see if he could speak to Moses or Leela to confirm his delivery. He knew something was wrong because he could hear birds squawking inside. But nobody came to the gate. Where was everyone? He knew that the birds would be hungry and the seeds he had dropped a week before would have finished by now. No, wait. Imagine if Jeff Bezos had never existed and deliveries like delivery men could still care about their jobs. That's that's an interesting observation. You're right. Like which delivery driver would usually care about all this, right? They've been paid to drop the package and leave. But he thought all these things, which is probably rare these days. But in 1994. So maybe that's a good also indication that like, you know, they weren't super social, but they had good relations with their vendors and with like the people that they worked with. Like, because I don't know, again, making a pretty wild assumption, but he might have like the delivery man might have cared about their delivery because he had a good relationship with them. Yeah. I mean, the community doesn't seem to be ostracizing them or anything like right. that, right? Like, yeah. they seem to be caring enough. So Daryl raised the alarm and alerted his boss, Tim Tegrini, who asked the other bird breeders and people who deal in those circles about the Lal Ranch. Now, adults can go missing on their own volition. It isn't a crime until a relative or close acquaintance reports them missing after a long period of disappearance. So no one had raised the alarm about anyone being missing from the ranch. Mm -hmm. But people were missing. No one's picking up the packages. Word got out that the birds at the Lal Ranch were by themselves and sounded distressed. The Loxahatchee area has nearly a hundred other prominent bird breeders, so the locals came over to look. 
They were all very concerned for the bird's well-being. They called the Florida Fish and Game Department, the cops, and even animal control. But they couldn't do anything since this was on private property. And turns out that Moses hadn't even registered his company or bought a license to breed and sell the birds. He only had the import license, which he was using back in New York. Now, why Moses skipped these steps is baffling because it only cost $25 to license his business. But he didn't do it. I don't know why he didn't do it. This, however, did create a problem with various agencies not being able to come onto the property to save the birds. I'm pretty sure, like, I have made the same mistakes somehow in my small business that I own is just like there's a lot of paperwork and it's really confusing (laughs) and sometimes you just forget the basic thing like registering your business I hope I have actually (laughs) that would be messed up no so it wasn't as simple as forgetting are they trying to evade taxes or something like what's going on maybe possible 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 there's a lot of money involved each of these birds can cost anywhere from five hundred to like two, three thousand dollars. What? No. Who the heck is paying a thousand or more bucks for a freaking bird? Just keep it in the cage and clean its shit. Come on. But these are not like canaries and parakeets. These are huge birds. Two cans. Two cans, Alex. Okay. Okay. You have a right. You have a point. <laughs> According to internationally acclaimed aviarist Howard Voren, who operated his own breeding program there, the Lal Ranch was shut off for the world. On his blog, he wrote that they spoke with no one in the local avicultural community, nor did they interact with anyone at any of the surrounding ranches. They lived extremely private lives, and no one except their vet was ever permitted to see their birds. In fact, they even refused to purchase a license that would have allowed them to legally breed and sell birds within the state of Florida. When approached by Florida Fish and Game the previous year, who urged them to purchase a permit and undergo minimal inspection procedures, they declined. They claimed that the birds were not for sale or breeding and were maintained for personal pleasure. Most of the locals who knew of Moses and Lila or Leela never saw them and were aware of their existence only because they all used the same feed company, the Birdhaven Company. Mm. So it seems like they were trying to kind of skirt the laws for obviously financial purposes. Like I think they didn't want to report on taxes and all that stuff. That's probably it. Not the best um, look for them. <laughs> yeah, it's like pretty mildly sketchy. Like I already don't really like this whole bird selling business. So I, I'm sorry to say, but I'm losing sympathy for whatever's gonna happen pretty fast. But maybe I'll <laughs> regain it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hold my judgment until I hear the whole story. So after eight days, okay, eight days of the locals losing their minds trying to get these birds some help and different departments dropping the ball, Tim Tagrini, owner of Birdhaven, came over to take another look at the ranch. And to his utter surprise, the 40 sacks of sunflower seeds and dried corn 
lay right there at the gate of the ranch, unclaimed. He could hear birds shrieking in absolute distress. He made the decision to hop the fence and take a look. He walked up behind the three-bedroom ranch home and made his way to the bird cages. He was faced with a horrific scene and a horrible stench. There lay hundreds of dead birds, parrots, macaws, toucans at the bottom of the cages and other birds weak and dying, screaming in terror. Some of the birds had resorted to cannibalizing the dead in order to survive. It was a nightmare, especially for local people who loved and cared for birds. Man, I'm feeling really bad about the birds. They are the victims in this story as far as I'm concerned so far. Again, trying to hold my judgment, but I do not like this. This is messed up. And again, these are special birds. They are actually very intelligent. Some of the African greys are supposedly at the same intellectual level as an eight-year-old human child. Oh, my God. I think. So imagine them going through this horror and having to eat their friends and family. Oh, man. Yeah. So Tim called all his bird breeder friends, including our famous aviarist we mentioned before, called Howard Warren. And together they raised enough of a ruckus that finally the authorities responded. And on June 15th, which is I think like 10 days later, Mm -hmm. the Palm Beach Sheriff's officers came over to assess the dreadful situation. Now, Howard Warren wrote in his blog that inside the house awaited another horror. Incubators still operating contained dead bird babies that had hatched but were never fed. Aquarium brooders that were lined up against the wall all had dead baby blue and gold macaws, which are now, by the way, endangered. There are only like 400 left in the wild. All had starved to death sitting on clean bedding while waiting for their next meal. An open bucket of hand-feeding formula was on the kitchen counter with a bowl and a spoon next to it. It appeared as if someone had changed the bedding in the brooders and was ready to mix up some formula for the birds when he or she was interrupted. Now they counted nearly 500 dead birds and another 330 birds that were dangerously close to dying. Howard and local aviarists all stepped in to help and hand-fed hundreds of birds to save them. Now, the birds that had died were estimated to be worth at least $500,000. Oh, my God. And the living birds cost like another $200,000. And this was just their quote-unquote hobby? Hobby. Just a personal hobby. Just a very expensive, fun, stinky hobby. This was a huge financial loss for the lols. They definitely wouldn't have just upped and left like that, leaving, you know, all this financial asset, Mm -hmm. I would think, all Mm -hmm. these financial assets. The surviving birds were sold off by Florida Animal Control to the public after the lol family was unable to pay the hefty sum of $180,000 to claim them back. So Moses and Leela's Uh, family did come over to Florida. I think Moses' mom, Mahidalal, had come over to try and claim the birds, but they couldn't cough up $180,000 out of the blue to claim them. So they were sold to public at an auction. 
Many of the birds went to inexperienced people who had no idea how to care for them because they were sold for such cheap amounts. Instead of like two, three thousand dollars per bird, they went for like three hundred to five hundred dollars. So anyone mm-hmm. with a kid who had a birthday coming got one of these birds and they had no idea how to care for them. So many of them ended up dead soon in months, which is a tragedy. I can only hope that these birds are paying for some horrible karma from a previous life and that they were all murderers and rapists in a past life because this is a really this is a really bad they didn't deserve this present life that they were living yeah yeah they did not deserve this and some parrots live up to 100 years by the way parrots what yes some parrots can live up to 100 years that's insane so it's not like they would have just died in a couple of years anyway. No, they could have lived full lives, like a hundred years. And we killed them. We killed them. Whatever. It's a disaster. Extinction. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'll admit that we have made this horrible mistake once in the past. When we were kids, my mom bought my sister a tiny little tortoise or turtle. I don't know what it was for her birthday. We had no idea how to care for it. And even though we gave it lettuce and cabbage leaves to eat and a big tub with little water to live in, a little shelter, some rocks and everything, it died in two weeks. Uh. And I think it was either already sick from all the travel or poor care before that, or it was too cold for him in the winter. Darn. And we didn't know that, right? Uh. Like they don't give us instructions. They just said, oh, feed them leaves. Uh That's it. We had no idea what to do for that poor thing. So um, I'm just, I feel awful about that. R.I.P. Rest in peace, little Mikey. We're sorry. That We're sucks. sorry. I'm sorry. I never, ever wanted a pet again after that. And to this day, I will never have a pet because of that. I'm like, no, no, I can't be responsible for another innocent life. <sighs> Especially because they can't talk. They can't tell you what's wrong with yeah. them, what they need. And I'm like, no, I don't want that stress and anxiety on me so I feel you. and i won't go to what's that horrible like nightmare place where people watch these captive orcas perform stupid sea world sea world i will does never that place go still there. exist i thought it got shut still down still exists. oh my god that's evil that's still evil exists. if you yeah. go to sea world shame on you don't shame. go there please don't go there don't take your kids there it's bad You know, those creatures are so intelligent. They should not be in that tiny, 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 tiny captivity. Bathtubs for their entire lives. I actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I just tried to watch Blackfish, which is, I think, a CNN produced documentary about it. I couldn't even get through five minutes of it. It was so depressing and so concerning. Watch Blackfish if you want to ruin your day. Yeah, exactly. Open your eyes. To the depths of cruelty that humans will go to in the name of entertainment. And money. Go check it out. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Now, back to our case. This is why we're doing this episode in two parts, by the way. (laughs) Because there's so much to discuss. Jeez. Okay. So no one had bothered much to look for Moses or Leela. Where were they? And where were Harry and Felix, the two ranch hands? 
No one cared. Everyone only cared about the birds. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's messed up, but it's funny. I know. It's bad, know. but it's also like I'm also mostly concerned about the birds right now. <laughs> I know. And even in our like Burari episode, we were like, what happened to Tommy? Right. <laughs> Poor Tommy. <sighs> but it's true. Animals are so innocent. Creatures are innocent. They didn't ask for this. They were involved without like if they have consent. I don't even know. Yeah. So most people in that area only cared about the birds and they're like people what we don't know who cares yeah except for the family right so lal's mother was contacted and she flew over to florida she told the police that the last time mahadi herself had heard from moses was five days before the delivery driver had left the packages now moses had called his parents in guyana to say he was sick with malaria after returning from a trip to africa he said he was resting and that Leela was in the kitchen cooking. He had sounded stressed, unlike himself, and hurried. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe he was just sick and not feeling it. Mm. Or, well, I don't know, was someone else there? Did he have a gun to his head? Mm, who knows? I mean, malaria. <laughs> Probably not fun. Could have just been the malaria, right? But maybe not. If he had malaria, that could have been a ruse. True. <laughs> Although with the uh, tropical birds and the, you know equatorial travels that's where a lot of malaria is right mosquitoes and all malaria that. is like the least of your problems that's true it's probably one of the safer diseases to get right just a few days later on june 18th the cops traced ranch hand roland felix in new york city he said he had quit work and moved to new york two weeks before the lols went missing convenient don't you mm -hmm. think like oh i wasn't there i'd quit two weeks ago he also told them that on June 4th, which is the day of the delivery, so the day that they had apparently disappeared, he had received a disturbing call from the other ranch hand, Harry. Mm -hmm. Harry had told him that he had just witnessed some smugglers or criminals of some kind mm -hmm. take Moses, Leela, and a bunch of birds at gunpoint in a white van. Whoa. Okay. That is concerning. Yeah. And then they just left 500K worth of birds behind. Mm-hmm. The smugglers just wanted these two people. I don't know why. Now, the cops brought in Lal's mother to look over the property and point out if anything was out of place. She immediately noticed that the family's white 1992 Plymouth Voyager van was missing. The cops put a bolo out for the white man and actually got a hit a few weeks later. Is bolo be on the lookout? Yes. Haha. Do you think this was the white man that Harry saw the smugglers take them in? Like he mentioned a white van and a white man is missing from if the ranch. If the white van fits. Drive into it. Drive it away. <laughs> In July, investigators were notified that the van had been impounded at a traffic stop arrest 400 miles away in Richmond Hills, Georgia, a month ago on June 7th. So this disappearance allegedly took place on June 4th, mm -hmm. and the van was impounded on June 7th. So that's like three days later. That's enough time to drive from here to there. For 400 sure. 400 miles is not much. Yeah. So while the van was found just a couple days after the Lyles went missing, the information didn't reach the Palm Beach Sheriff because information just moved really slow back then. Telex, like more stippy, beep, 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 van missing, I don't know. 
and that to like manually looking up files in physical oh, yeah. paper files. Oh my god. So this delay may have cost them the case because the driver of the van had been transporting tropical parrots and a hundred exotic turtles when he was pulled over to the side of the road to fix a flat tire. The state trooper checked his license, which was handed over by the driver, and that was of Moses Lal. The license was suspended, so the man was arrested and spent a night in jail. They had him, whoever it was. Mm -hmm. Now, the next day, he was let out on bail as he had pleaded with the cops that he had to feed the birds and the turtles in the van. Now, the Georgia police courteously drove the man to a motel for the night. They're like, all right, sir, let me drive you to the motel. Your your chauffeur awaits. Yeah. Okay, this is weird. This is all really weird. What is the story? Who does this? I can't imagine cops driving anyone anywhere today. Especially a brown man. Forget it. (gasps) Brown man who smells like turtles, probably. The next day, they learned that the man had never checked into the motel and he never returned to the station to claim the van either. So he just kind of upped and left. The minute he got out of the police station, he's like, see ya. Now, when the mugshot was shown to Mahadilal, they're like, hey, listen, your son was arrested two days later. She identified the man as Daljeet Harry Golbin, the missing ranch hand. A.K.A. Harry. Harry. The van was searched and along with many expensive birds, reptiles and turtles, they found an instructional tape on how to change one's identity. (laughs) This is definitely (laughs) pre-YouTube. Kind of dumb. Why did he keep it in the van? You should have washed it and thrown it. It's like Googling how to get away with murder, how to kill your husband or whatever. And why did he have the tape in the van? Did he also have a portable TV and VCR? (laughs) what was he planning to do like (laughs) the motel places motels didn't have vcrs come on did they does anyone who was alive and an adult or a kid and lived in a motel (laughs) back in the 90s in america write to us can they please chime in and tell us did motels have vcrs like where would he play this tape why was he carrying it around did he want to like watch it again and again and be like i'm gonna get so good at this Maybe he thought that, like, he should keep it on him because it would never be found because he was never going to get found. (laughs) I'm sure the first instruction in that tape would be, throw this tape tape. away. Destroy this turn tape when you watch it, you idiot. (laughs) Oh, my God. Dumb, dumb. Give him a Budu award, please. We need to give him one. That is comedic. Harry, you you get our first Budu award for this episode. Budu award granted. So the cops had him and they had let him go because they couldn't tell the difference between pictures of two Indo-Guyanese men. Oh, classic. Okay, this is Harry. This guy is Harry. And this is Moses. Okay, yeah. Pretty different bone structure, faces, hair, everything. (laughs) Totally different people. Yeah. These poor cops, they couldn't tell. They're like, they look the same to me. Harry was among the last people who had seen Moses and Leela alive, and the cops had lots of questions for him. But he vanished after this incident. I mean, why wouldn't he? He had that magic tape. (laughs) 
So just like Harry, who vanished after this incident, we're going to vanish from this episode right now <laughs> because we're going to cut this into a two-parter. I have to go feed my 200 turtles. And I have to go feed my one toddler who is the equivalent of 200 turtles. Actually, I have to go first fetch her from school. There we go. Should we trade licenses and just see what happens one day? It seems like these white cops really can't tell the difference. I could be Priyanka Chopra. Don't you know me? I was in Baywatch, you idiot. This doesn't look like you. What do you mean you? What do you mean you? <laughs> Hello? Yeah. So I hope... So we'll pick up next week. We're going to talk about Harry. We're going to talk about... Felix, we're going to talk about some certain strange incidences that occurred before and after the disappearance of Moses and Leela. And also if there were any updates to this case. I just want to let you know now, spoiler alert, Moses and Leela were never found. So it is an unsolved case. That's why okay. it was an unsolved mystery. <laughs> but man, the, uh, the, the plot is as thick as the Guyanese rainforest, isn't it? Perfect. That was amazing. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've been holding on to that one. Just waiting for my chance. What are we calling this episode? Moses and Lila Saga. Can we call this like the vanishing bird people of Guyana? What are we going to call it? Birds of a feather? How's that? Birds of a feather? Okay. Well, yeah. Are flown away. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds a little dramatic, but it kind of fits. Now, I don't know. We'll figure it out. We don't know what we're calling yeah. this yet. But you can join us for part two of this case next week on another episode of Crimes from the East, your Desi True Crime podcast with a little masala, masala. and spice. spice. Bye. Namaste. Bye. Thanks, Pia. <laughs>